there has been kind of a separation from uh, what's going on in everyday addiction and recovery to a, a, a group that still is struggling with addiction at a level that, well, just quite frankly, in the in the AIDS epidemic of, of the 80s and 90s, um, the focus on what uh, the gay men were going through uh, was big. It was there was there was a lot of energy around it. There was a lot of uh, desire to find the solution, and it seemed that as as medicine improved uh, and things settled down, at least in the eyes and the view of everybody who was watching this experience from the outside or experiencing it from the outside. But, but there are things within the gay community that has not changed. And, we, and when we are working with loved ones who are in that community, we have to know what's actually going on. Uh, Dr. David Fawcett is here with me on a CCSAD virtual 2020 conference. Uh, he has written a book called Lust, Men, and Meth, and we're going to talk about what's actually taking place within the gay community because there are some things that, while some things have changed, there are some things that haven't. Uh, this is our second round at recording this. The first time it was great interview, and uh, then uh, we had some technical difficulties, and we're we're going for second time around. So, Doc, thank you for joining me on a Saturday morning, making sure we get this in on time for the CCSAD conference. You're one of the speakers that, if we were live, we would be meeting face to face at the CCSAD conference. Are you talking? talking about uh at the conference were you talking about your book were you talking about the gay community or or where were what was your what was your topic at the conference yeah thanks Aaron. i appreciate the opportunity to be here this morning uh yeah the the topic at the uh cape cod symposium was about this phenomenon we're calling chemsex uh chemsex. but it really extends beyond the gay community because chemsex is a word that really describes this paired co-occurring use of drugs and sex, often amphetamines with sexual behavior, porn, sexual acting out, that kind of thing. And it's certainly prevalent in the gay community and, and the term chemsex grew out of the gay community, but that phenomenon of co-occurring addictions applies to everyone. And the topic at the conference is really uh, how to help clinicians recognize when drugs and sex have been paired into one addictive system and what to do about it. When when you and I were speaking about drugs and sex mixing, uh, certainly my experience from it working with uh, uh, teens is that there is there is an absolute this is an absolute reaction to a traumatic experience that that any promiscuity whether whether the kid is is gay straight bi trans that part is irrelevant. What we're seeing is that this is a reaction to trauma. Is, does that still hold true? Is that something that's still going on uh, with with adults in the community? Yeah, I think that that absolutely holds true, that we've seen that a lot of, uh, frankly, almost all addictive behavior really grows out of what we call adverse childhood experiences, with which includes trauma of all the kinds we know of. But it also, we're rec increasingly recognizing it can include neglect. So a kid may not even identify as having been kind of traumatized, but if they're uh, caregivers or parents were kind of just emotionally disconnected, uh, that, that can result in kind of the same traumatic reaction as well. But yeah, that definitely underlies a lot of this behavior. So then are we looking at is this might be a chicken and egg 
question, but are we looking at this drug thing uh, is a way to do sex without actually having to feel or connect? I remember when you and I were doing our first conversation about this, there was a lot of topic about a lot of conversation around connection and the ability to actually connect, which is crazy. People want to have sex to feel connected, but yet we're using during sex. And that is a massive disconnect. Talk about this for a second. Totally. And it's so true. And I talk to my clients who use these drugs for sex that they'll say, well, I'm searching for that connection. And I always kind of uh, put put connection in air quotes because it may feel like a connection, but but in reality, when somebody is uh, well into this sexualized drug use or co-occurring sex and drug behavior, there it's really about disconnecting from the person. They're up in their head. They may be having sex or or having contact with a physical body, but that person is almost like a prop in the fantasy that's playing out in their head. They're they're disconnected in a way that I, as a sex therapist, would call kind of a healthy connection uh, where where someone is really, there's uh, energy back and forth, there's communication, there's pleasing and being pleased, and you're aware of your partner's feelings. With chemsex, it's much more about being inside your head, and it may feel like you're connected, but it's it's a very different experience. Is there a specific drug that is focused on your book you mentioned meth specifically is it is it methamphetamines that is the the primary source of of the chemsex the dual addiction piece or are, are there other drugs involved uh, um, very often there's an amphetamine on board and that methamphetamine is the most powerful of those but what i am increasingly concerned about actually i'm glad you mentioned it is adderall which basically from a from the, the body doesn't really almost know the difference between meth or Adderall. It's, it's a very high powered stimulant. And I see a lot of younger uh, men, particularly younger boys, males, uh, using Adderall as part of the amphetamine. But but almost always there is an amphetamine on board. Often there is another drug, very high risky dangerous drug called G, GHB, gamma hydroxybutyrate, which kind of takes the edge off and it's very different feeling, but, but people can overdose very easily on it. It stops your respiratory system. And then benzodiazepines, it at that point, people start to use a whole kind of assembly of drugs, but oftentimes there's an amphetamine. And alcohol and marijuana, by the way, too. I don't want to forget. These, some of these other drugs are more exotic, but good old alcohol and marijuana are almost always the, the introduction to this course. And it, it seems like a lot of the use of this, again, is to just kind of round off the edges of anxiety or boosting yourself up out of depression. But is there more than this going on emotionally? If we're talking about things rooted in trauma, if we're talking about addiction, that is literally there's a mental ibuprofen piece going on. But how is how is marijuana this, you know, is, and I want, I want parents to hear this because marijuana still, you can Google 4 billion pages on how marijuana is awesome for you. But, but how are people using marijuana for, for, for sex? Like, how is that becoming part of a co-addiction? Right. Well, first of all, it's well known that marijuana on a developing brain, you know, an adolescent brain really up to about the age of 25, 26 is, is, quite harmful, right. despite all the uh, <laughs> Google documents for, for medical marijuana and so on. <laughs> right. um, but marijuana, alcohol, oftentimes disinhibit and or get people in the mood, get okay. them in the physical space. And, what, and you, there is more. It's not just the enhancement, but what I'm finding where there's trauma, adverse childhood experience, there are what I call core beliefs at work. And oftentimes these have to do with one's ability to be vulnerable or to trust uh, and to really connect with someone in in an, uh, a way that doesn't require some kind of chemical assistance. So a lot of times these 
people are overcoming inhibitions. Uh, in the case of the, the gay men that I work with, there's a lot of internalized homophobia, a lot of internalized stigma uh, that they, a lot of shame. You know, I think probably if there's one emotion, I think that underlies a lot of this is shame. And so uh, you may have a core belief that says I'm, uh, I'm unworthy, I'm uh, unprotected, I'm unsafe, you know, whatever those kind of I statements are that, that almost fade into the background. They're not really conscious thoughts, but, but uh, they do affect behavior and this kind of seeking for uh, a way to connect and break through those inhibitions. You know, I had an experience yesterday in the facility uh, where, because I'm also one of the teachers over there in the facility, aside from owning it, and one of our kids who's trans and transitioned from female to male um, got a letter from her grandfather, his grandfather. And his grandfather wrote, I love you so much. You're too pretty to be a boy. I will always see you as my granddaughter. And his reaction to this um was watching what disconnect looks and feels like. When you have a family member who loves you and wants the best for you, is afraid for your safety. Because, And as we talked about, there's still a lot of violence that still is a community that is uh, uh, more prone to violence and violent attacks in other communities. So it can make sense when a parent who doesn't understand or a grandparent doesn't understand that they want to protect. But when you saw this young man's reaction to this experience, the saying, well, I'm not going to read any letters from my grandfather again, that's disconnect. And so the starvation for connection, despite what's going on mentally or dealing with dependency, this connection piece is huge. And when you're watching this, how do you, how do you, I guess my question is this, you and I talked last time, you're a sex positive therapist, which means what? Please explain that. Yeah, so my training is as a sex therapist, which means that uh, our core belief is that everyone, uh, every adult, at least, is, is should have a healthy sex and intimate life. Uh, so health, that basically, the approach is sex is good, not something to be controlled or limited. But but of course, healthy sex between consenting people and all that. But but that I my I think in addiction sometimes we we uh, talk to a drug user and say if you just get into recovery, your sex will kind of take care of itself. And and my experience has been the sex just kind of gets hung up because people don't know how to do it. Right. And I think I, I mean and by that I mean welcoming somebody in with that with trust and vulnerability and being able to connect and, and be intimate with someone, it's difficult. And I think that just doesn't come naturally sometimes for an addict. They need some help and encouragement. Well, and and so, so to this point, when we talked about guilt and shame and we talked about family members who truly don't get it, they just don't understand and they don't have to like it. And quite frankly, they don't have to get it and understand it, but they do have to right. stand in a place of support. And now I'm watching connection be removed. And I'm watching the, the defense mechanism of, of abandonment, which is fine. I don't need that. But we all know he does. And we all know right. he's going to seek it out. And we all know he's going to find it. We all know that he's questioning orientation. He's questioning gender. He's questioning. He's going through this phase of wondering, does this fit who I feel I am? And right. now the starvation of connection is going to happen. The guilt and shame of pulling back, the guilt and shame of I'm causing problems for my family. We know guilt and shame is the, they're the twin pillars of addiction. So back to the chicken and the egg comment, does the emotional piece start this, start this process up 
or does the drug piece start this up? That's the chicken and egg. Is it is it the, the in chemsex? Is it the the physical connection piece that gives birth to this, or is it the drug piece that gives birth to the addiction? I think it's it, it starts before someone ever picks up a drug. I think they're kind of set up. Uh, we we train ourselves. I'm in recovery. I know as a kid, I kind of learned how to disconnect, or, or now I would call it dissociate. I could, you know, buy into fantasy. And sometimes it was good reading, music, but other times it was not. And I think, and as soon as I met a drug in my adolescent years, I, boy, that like super propelled this. I knew how to do this. I knew how to disconnect. And, and there was a way to kind of escape float away and so i think that that we're set up in a way when we have those experiences and these core beliefs to kind of be searching for a place to belong you know to connect to to feel safe and emotionally safe so i think the drugs really become an enabling mechanism but i think the underlying uh system if you will is is there already before we ever find the drugs so now for that matter or or sex for that matter and and certainly this young man is is not not old enough to, to really be, I know, I know he's thinking about it. I know he's wondering about it. I know he's questioning it, but he's not ready to start being intimate physically with other people. And and that's, but, but it's, it's heartbreaking to watch this process of a family saying, I don't accept that. And so you have to find acceptance elsewhere. And if you can't, by God, you got to numb out that feeling, that emotion. Right. And it, it, the, the, the scenario you just gave with this young man, is just, it was almost worse because there was a mixed message in there. I love you, but, but. you know, so it's even more painful in a way. Uh, and, and that's what we find found a lot of people and in our society in general, this, this epidemic of loneliness. And I think a lot of that, everybody's searching for that connection. But in, in these young men and women who are uh, sexual minorities who are stigmatized anyway, I think it's especially acute. And that's why we do see the higher rates of suicide and higher rates of addiction and higher rates of violence uh, because of the, the, the social stress that these young men and women have to go through. I want to ask some questions about the, the, the gay uh, lesbian community that, that let me be upfront. This is, this is, this is based on uh, the fear mongering of heterosexuals, the straight people who don't know and don't see. And I would love to get some understanding of where perhaps some of these rumors or uh, if they're not rumors, if they're true, where they came from. And my, my primary one is, is the gay men community more promiscuous than a hetero community? You know, I think... It's hard to say. I think the gay male community, particularly, uh, there's a, more of a kind of a, a cultural acceptance of more um, hookups, if you will, without the emotional connection. So I think it does happen. But I think um, as I'm increasingly working with the heterosexual community, I think it's happening quite a bit out there too, but they may not be talking about it as much. Um, but I think you know, overall, in general, in the LGBTQ community, there is a, a tolerance of more sexual behavior. And I think more uh, drug use as well. I think there's a, there are higher rates of um, addiction, uh, and I might add higher rates of resilience in that community too. I think there's a tremendous amount of. Um, I don't think we see addiction as bad as we might expect it to be, given the social stressors on this community. I think there's a great deal of resilience as well. 
Is is the tolerance and resiliency for casual hookups, is that still a result of uh, dealing with this ability to connect piece? Or are people just saying, look, we're, we're here, we're together, we love each other and accept each other, let's get connection where we can and not make such a big deal out of it? Like, like is, is, that, is that version of, is that healthy or is it unhealthy in your, your opinion, this, this, the casual nature of it? Yeah, I think I think it can be problematic in that uh, people get in. I've had a lot of clients over the years who got in this kind of hookup pattern, yeah. and it becomes increasingly difficult. I think to start to establish long term, longer term relationships because there's a there's intensity, right? And that's a lot of what this chemsex thing is about. There's intensity when you first meet somebody. There's uh, what what a sex therapist would call limerence. There's a lot of hormones floating around, oxytocin right. and right. and all these things. It's exciting. And uh, people get kind of addicted to that yeah. intensity of first kind of hooking up, meeting and then and then move on without learning how to move to the next kind of natural phase of relationship or develop a little more intimacy. And by the way, a hookup, a casual hookup, there's no risk, basically. I mean, there's no emotional right. risk. Uh, there, there can be other risks, but, but, and people don't have to really reveal yourselves or deal with their internal, you know, negative core beliefs or their shame. They can just kind of wall it off and compartmentalize it and just have a physical act without uh, bringing all that other stuff, especially if drugs are on board, it helps soothe any of those self-doubt. Uh, so they kind of numb out and go and act out, and that's the pattern. You know, I think to get into that that routine for a, for the long haul can be harmful for the ability to sustain relationships. You know, what's amazing is that as you're answering that question, you are literally describing the process that Neil Strauss wrote about in the game, where he infiltrated the 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 pickup world, where men picking up women and how to pick up women, and you know, being able to get the number and then get the women into bed, and he moved into a household with these guys who were experts at it. He became one of the experts. And one by one, he watched these men go through the exact same thing, the addictive nature of the casual hookup and the energy and, and certainly the chemicals flying and the limbic resonance of this is the exactly. way it is and everything. But then you start to watch the, I'm going to use the word illness, but it's but it was from loneliness. Like loneliness is that is that yeah. it didn't matter how many women these guys were hooking up with. They were lonely and starving for real connection. Um, right. And next thing you know, there's there's addiction rampant. People are they're fist fighting in a house. Like I mean, it's and it and so again, I ask that question just just kind of you know shine some light on on what straight people think about that community but you just describe what's happening in the hetero community with with consistent casual pickups so now we've got these men and these women who with chemsex uh, it, it, what a perpetuating cycle that that one thing is encur encouraging the other thing which is encouraging the other thing you don't like how you feel regardless so you use when you use you have sex your guard is down is there still uh, uh, again, coming from from a straight man, I I, I want to ask: Is there still a higher rate of STDs in the gay community, and is it because of the chemsex, or is this just another thing that it's like, well, they have a, and that's a way we get to set them aside? 
Well, I think I think there is because of the high risk behavior, and and frankly, there's been another thing that kind of poured gasoline on the fire here, and that's the the apps, the online apps, which oh, kind of provided sure. a quick way to hook up, find drugs, find sex partners, and with the app uh, revolution, you know, and the iPhone, I guess almost ten years now, the the amount of, of uh, syphilis and gonorrhea and so on has has started to really escalate. And so I do think there's a connection there. Um, we're still kind of looking for that to get to get all the data on it. But but yeah, and, and if you look at uh, overall a chronic meth user, uh, a man who sex with men, MSM, and we, we use that term, by the way, if people don't know, because uh, not everybody who has sex with men identifies as being gay. Right. So we're looking at the behavior as opposed to what people may call themselves. But but I'm um, among that community of chronic meth users who are MSM, over half will become HIV uh, positive. They'll serve or convert. So yeah, there is a there is a correlation between some of these high risk um, behaviors and and the consequences in terms of healthcare. So is 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 the HIV positive? Is is this still at epidemic levels? Is or is this something that we took care of? You know, boy, great question. And I think, you know, we have medications now and it's, you know, relatively manageable illness now, but it's still, uh, I tell my young men that I work with, you're still catching basically chemotherapy for life. That's our treatment. Now we don't have any other treatment and it's, it's still there. My worry, frankly, uh, is that, you know, when I I do a lot of training of therapists and when I ask them to describe a, a a chemsex user, they think of middle-aged gay white guy. And what we're seeing increasingly is that this chemsex phenomenon has moved into the black and Latinx MSM community. And in those communities, it's really merged with HIV. So we're seeing HIV rates go through the roof uh, in those minority communities. And um, in much of it, it's tied to chemsex. So I think those two, what what I guess we'd call a syndemic, these simultaneous epidemics that are really on fire. So that's a long way of answering your question. HIV in certain communities is is still out of control. You know, when we come back, I'm going to do a commercial and shout out to some sponsors for CCSAD in the 2020 virtual conference. But when we come back, I want to talk about the dynamic of abstinence and harm reduction when we're dealing with drugs and sex, because I I think that's a question. How do you, how do you say no to use old Nancy Reagan's, you know, concept? How do you say no when, when really at the root of all this is connection? So Dr. Fawcett, stay with me for a second. Uh, I'll be right back with you. This conference is going through an experimentation of how do we do this when we can't all stand in the same room? Certainly being directly across from Dr. Fawcett in a, in a room, being able to, you know, share that body connection and that, you know, the, the body language and watching how the conversation goes face to face. It's much different on Zoom. Uh, so CCSAD C4, C4 events, who puts on the CCSAD conference, this virtual 2020 conference, has had to pivot, just like everybody in this in this whole world right now during COVID. And the pivot has been to take this online. There's been a massive uh massive amount of work trying to figure out how we're gonna do this and how things are gonna change and what things will look like. And there's been companies and individuals who have stepped up to make sure that C4, CCSAD, has had the amount of of money and support that they would for a regular conference. Because usually when you're walking through a conference, you're walking by booths and you see who's a sponsor and sponsor gets shout outs from the stage. So let's shout out 
to the silver sponsors from the stage, people who ponied up, stepped up, and paid up to make sure that this virtual conference could happen. Our silver sponsors are Alina Lodge, Gosnold, Heal Behavioral Health, Origins, Origins Behavioral Healthcare, Recovery Centers of America, Southworth Associates, the District Recovery Community, and Timberline Knowles. These people have put it down on the table, they've put their money where their mouth is, and they've really helped this conference happen, even though we're not allowed to be in the same same room. So shout out to our silver sponsors and shout out to C4 Events, who's keeping these connections going, even though we can't be in the same place at the same time. All right, let's get back to Dr. David Fawcett. Okay, so let's talk about, let's talk about abstinence doc because that is a model of recovery but with food uh with sex with internet these are things that can't necessarily follow abstinence so so my first question is do you ever promote abstinence in such a way that you're saying hey for a year you need to not have sex or do we just find another way do we find a harm reduction model Great question because you know with drugs, uh, someone once cross, someone's crossed that line. You really, I, I totally believe in an absence model. Uh, we, we joked last time you can't really have a, a social meth user often. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't happen very often. I only all. use meth so, during the Super Bowl. Otherwise, I'm right, good. Right. It doesn't happen. <laughs> Otherwise, you're good. Uh, so, so absence there. But you know, as I said, we're we want to learn how to incorporate healthy sex intimacy. Uh, uh, so we can't just say abstinence. Uh, we can't just say abstinence from food. So there are ways in some of these sex addiction programs with a circle plan to, to identify what behavior for each individual is problematic, what might be a slippery slope, might, what might be you know, actually affirming behavior. So, so we do kind of correspond with that. But, but your question is, is interesting because what happens with these combined sex and drug behaviors is that because of the work of dopamine and the reward circuitry in the brain, we get tolerance and escalation. So suddenly our brains require this super stimulation to just feel activated. And so normal stuff, including our husbands and wives and, and our dogs and, and great food that we used to really enjoy, none of that seems very interesting at all. And we have to go for this higher stimulation. And so I found it really useful in recovery to say, okay, let's put sex on the table, uh, off the table rather, uh, for 90 days uh, and, and kind of let the brain come back down to earth. You know, we, we use, it's not very neurologically correct term, we, I say reboot the brain, right? We want to let the brain kind of readjust. And during that readjustment time, by the way, with chemsex, there is this period of what we call anhedonia, where people just kind of blah everything because they're not getting sure. that high level of stimulation. And, but, but I found if they just take it off the table for a while, it does really speed up the recovery process and they can start to reconnect or, or learn how to connect maybe for the first time and deal with some of the vulnerabilities, and trust and, and really start to develop intimacy skills does this include pornography because certainly pornography has has one of the the same things the the dopamine release the escalation of behaviors and what you're looking at uh the more risky edgy until some at some point uh with with addiction and porn addiction we're in a realm that is quite frankly illegal and deviant as 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 far as the, the the dsm is concerned uh if not people's morals and ethics. So what about pornography? Is this a, is yeah, this an absent question. model or harm reduction? 
Great question. I think uh, I, we do pornography with that same circle plan. For some people, it's absolutely off the table. For other people, they think they can handle it. But I will tell you, I'll tell you a story. My very first couple clients with this, as a sex therapist, they came to me not for drugs, but because of sexual issues, erectile dysfunction, right. an inability to function at all sexually. We started looking. They were in recovery from meth. You know, one of them was almost a year drug-free. Nothing was going on sexually. And we looked at what was going on. He was still using pornography um, that was meth related. So there's, there's, you know, all genres and flavors of pornography, but they're, they're basically chem sex porn where, where they're very explicit, you know, watching people inject, watching people clearly using meth and all that was, he was keeping it alive in his brain, even though he wasn't ingesting the drug anymore. So, so for that kind of thing, I, I really recommend an absence from pornography as well. And if somebody is going to maybe incorporate pornography, if they can do it safely, and I'd recommend a 90 day blackout on that too. But if they do try to take it back, certainly to avoid any kind of pornography that's triggering or reminds them of, of the old days uh, when they were using drugs and sex and, and had that higher level of escalation. With, with everything that we're looking at in the world about how far uh, people are willing to go in, in a sexual manner, you know, with, with this child exploitation revelation, because for a lot of people, this is new. For a lot of us who've worked with, you know, kids in recovery and people who have been exploited and victimized, this is not new. It's just right. public all of a sudden. Right. But but it, you you said a you said something when you talked about chemsex porn. There's a part of my mind that said, "What? There's what?" And the other part of my mind said. Yeah, rule 64. Like, you have to remember, if you can think of it, there's porn about it, and that is part of the illness of porn. Um, but but there was also something that came up around chemsex porn. Uh, a meth addict in recovery, watching people use meth and then having sex, and that he was using that in a pornographic manner. What, what really tripped me up is the idea one of the reasons why they say meth not even once is because meth doesn't just inhibit the neurotransmitter to the point that the neurotransmitter start stops working like heroin where you can actually after a few years of recovery and some really good brain work you can get it going again but meth can destroy the neurotransmitter and it doesn't fire would watching I mean, is is that is that the piece? Is that why while meth is killing the neurotransmitter of pleasure because it's just an absolute overload and the circuit is being blown, can porn actually or sex actually rebuild it? Or is it just to feel even more? Is it just more ODing on the dopamine and serotonin? Yeah, it's definitely not not rebuilding it. And, and you're right, meth, unlike other drugs, actually, you know, cocaine will sit on that dopamine receptor and right. roll off after 50 minutes and the high is over and, you know, you're good to go. But right. with methamphetamine, it sits there for eight or nine or 10 hours, much longer high, but it's neurotoxic, right. which means over a period of time, you're creating kind of a functional brain injury where, where your brain isn't functioning properly, can't distribute the dopamine like it should, which, which leads to emotional problems and impulsivity and all kinds of stuff. Um, so when people are looking at this kind of, of, even though they're, you know, they made a commitment not to use the drug, but they're looking at this kind of porn. It's an effort to just feel anything, to get to get any baseline level of stimulation to be able to function at all. And and and, and uh, sadly, they're just perpetuating the problem. Now, the good news is that those dopamine uh, pathways do regenerate. Uh, there's been a lot of brain work on this, uh, but it takes up to 24 months, and that's a long time. That's a long. It's two and if years. You know, anybody in in meth recovery, uh, every day is hard. You're being, you're constantly triggered and craving, and you're feeling 
you know, depressed and hopeless. And it's really, it's a hard, and I think that's one of the reasons why relapse occurs more frequently with methamphetamine. People do recover, but it's a, it's a hard road for sure. How can people follow up with you? You have a podcast, a weekly uh, uh, online series, a webinar. Right. So um, it's uh, it's called Sex, Love, and Addiction, Healing Conversations for Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Men. And it's available on all the formats, Apple, Pandora, all of them. Uh, and also, uh, I'd encourage people to look at us, our site called sexandrelationshiphealing.com. We offer numerous free uh, things every week, interactive webinars with me, with Dr. Rob Weiss, my colleague, who's a sex addiction therapist, and a number of other people. Uh, and that has podcasts, blogs, all kinds of resources. And then we do uh, offer a residential treatment for adult men uh, at seekingintegrity.com. That was, that's where, as I was looking at your email, I was like seeking integrity, seeking integrity. And I was trying to put together what it was that Dr. Fawcett and seeking integrity have. This is a facility that you, you are a therapist at, you you are a VP. I'm actually vice president for clinical That's programming. It's a, uh, it's a residential program in Los Angeles. Uh, f- as I say, for adult men, we treat sex addiction, porn addiction, and this co-occurring drug use and sexual behavior. Very specialized, but it's uh, we really we focus on that. That's what we do, and we do it we do it very well. And by the way, people can reach me at David at SeekingIntegrity.com. David that site. at okay. David at SeekingIntegrity.com. Uh, Doctor Fawcett, is there is there a number that they can reach out to you? Or should we just uh, do a phone number? Yeah. Um, yeah, 747-234-4050. Okay, and just to verify, sexandrelationshiphealing.com. Did I say that right? Yes. And then s- say the name of your 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 weekly uh, podcast series. Yes, it's Sex, Love, and Addiction, Healing Conversations for Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Men. And I would also recommend uh, for parents that are interested or reading this, the book, Lust Men and Meth, Gay Men's Guide to Sex and Recovery is uh, considered really the the key source on that now for, and although it deals with gay men, the phenomena that we're talking about with the underlying core beliefs and all that really applies to everybody. Uh, struggling with this of course now I, I, of course it does and and that's one of the amazing things is that throughout this whole conversation i every every time you spoke i was like well this applies to this parent of a kid in my facility and a i'm dealing with you know very mixed genders and orientations and you know uh hetero and and all of them at the facility but every single one of these parents um there was there was something in what you were saying that their kids are dealing with. If if at the very least, the right. the guilt and the shame, the brain chemistry dysfunction that's taking place, and how people are starving in this world uh, uh, for connection. So this is this totally. is not a, a one sided issue over here that we're talking about David's special community. This is this is all of us. I want to ask how best. I guess this is two part. But how best can people in the industry support the LGBT community uh, and how best can parents support? And I know, and I, Dr. Fawcett, I'm looking for something beyond learn how to listen to your kids. I could, because I think we have heard that so much that parents are just numb to that concept and they're not even listening to that as a process anymore. 
So how can the straight community get out there and be advocates and allies to a community that is that is still suffering, not only the the drug addiction and the the the, uh, the STDs that we're all suffering with, but also the added isolation piece where where they're they're still being kicked out, they're still being bullied grandfathers are still saying, I'll never see you the way you see yourself. You'll always be my, and that's so selfish. So how, right. how can we stand up for your community? Well, I think uh, for adults, I think it's really important to kind of work through our own issues. <laughs> by the way. Oh, uh, well, yeah, now I you just a, lost all the I listeners. Do. Sorry. No. <laughs> no, I, have a, I do a lot of work with, with therapists who um, are uncomfortable with, with having a sexual conversation. And I, and I say that in the, in the gentlest possible way for people, but just to really um, maybe look at your fears, look at your stereotypes, your stigma and, 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 you know, think about that stuff. But, but I would say when you're interacting with somebody who is really having some of these uh, struggles to really just be present and, and sometimes be a good listener. And I think that that connection, we know from studies, it just takes one supportive adult in the lives of one of these kids to, to really have a profound impact. It's a, it's a huge protective factor. Just one. And I think, um, and, and just, if you just, we practice a little empathy and put your, yourself in their shoes for a minute and just realize how lonely and scary that place is. They're just looking for a friendly voice where they can talk about about this and it, I think just that open communication to the best possible extent is what we can do and and sometimes it's just saying you know I love you and maybe stop with there instead of saying I'll <laughs> never you know see you as uh, whatever but it just just stop yeah. just stop with the good part leave the rest yeah. leave the rest to yourself and I gotta I gotta just say Aaron too because I do a lot with parents and I'm just unbelievable impressed with uh, the courage some of these parents have to dealing with their own fears and knowing that their child is going to have a hard time and but despite that you know being present and not disconnecting and, and staying and walking on, on that journey with them it makes a huge difference dr fawcett i'm so glad we reached we reshot this episode because we took a lot more time i think we got into uh, a few of the concepts a little deeper and i'm really yeah. glad i still want to have you back as a full hour guest and, and just dive deep uh moms and dads lust men and meth by dr david fawcett uh doctor you can find this on amazon correct Totally, yes. Uh, okay. It's also audiobook, Kindle, any version. Wonderful, wonderful. So get Lust, Men, and Meth. Um, and if you need to get in touch with uh, David, it's david at seekingintegrity.com. Um, and you can go to sexandrelationshiphealing.com. And then Secret, Seeking Integrity is the program he's working with right. out there in California. So Dr. Fawcett, thank you so much for, for taking the extra time sure. with me. My pleasure. Thanks for all you do too. Uh, my you. pleasure. Thank you. Stay on the line just for a second while I take us out. There's something that Dr. Fawcett was saying when we were um, having this conversation, both last time and this time. Uh, and, and it was about uh, uh, just really being present and really listening and being a part of this experience. And, and this is what I know, being a facility that works with kids in transition, kids of any orientation, children of any gender, this is what I know. When I hear a parent say, well, I'm, 
I'm not ready. I have to go through my process. I, this all makes sense. And it's very, very valid. When your child comes out to you and says, I'm not a girl, I'm a boy. I'm not straight. I'm gay. And all of your, uh, preconceptions and your concept of this child, the identity that you have established, because this has been your child for 12, 13, 14, 15 years, suddenly gets shattered and you feel everything. You're scared. You feel betrayed. you, 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 You feel like it's your fault. Just because the image of your child that you had no longer seems relevant to this child. I wanna say one thing, and I need you to know, parents, that I say this to the children who are angry at their parents for not understanding and jumping on board with this kid's process right away. The reason why the disconnect is happening between you and your child is because while this is something that you just discovered, while you just found this out, while this has just been revealed to you, it's something they've been living with their whole life life as long I've never asked a kid it's like well when did this show up for you they're like last Thursday this is something that they have been experiencing the, since they could be conscious about their experience <clears throat> so you've got to go through your process and you've got to go through your process with another adult You've got to go through a process with your therapist because when this grandfather when I saw this young man, separate from his grandfather. We're not supposed to separate from our grandfathers. The grandfather myth is dead already to take a child away from their grandfather because the grandfather needs to get something off his chest or the grandmother needs to just say this once. Is it worth losing the kid? And if it is, you're not listening to this show anyway. And that's what I love about you, my listeners, is that you're here doing the work. You're listening to this because you're trying to figure out how to do the work the right way. So understand this. While this is new for you, it's been their whole life. So when Dr. Fawcett says step in their shoes, experience that. Now, a therapist's job is to get your kiddo, who's just revealing this to you, to step into your shoes as an adult and say, Now that you've gone through your process and you've come out, your parents have to go through their process so they can be out there with you. So that's where this works. This is why you need a professional like Dr. Fawcett involved with you. So I want to say thank you to C4 Events. I want to, I want to, just say that this has been amazing because I get to talk to experts like Dr. Fawcett and bring them right to you. Get his book, Lust, Men, and Meth. I'm going to get it for the, uh, the, the, the staff members at my facility. I'm going to read it. I know my executive director is going to read it. This is the type of information we need. Parents, Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond Risk and Back. I've been your host, Aaron Huey. This has been a CCSAD virtual 2020 conference uh, uh, edition of Beyond Risk and Back, and it has been hosted by C4 Events. C4 Events is amazing. They put on these great conferences every single year. And I've been there physically. I'm glad to stay with them virtually. I want to thank Deepin Productions for doing this amazing music for my podcast. I love it so much. They also produce and uh, clean up all my episodes. So thank you to Deepin Productions. You can go to deepinproductions.com to learn more. And parents, remember, in this and all things working with your kids, you got to take care of yourself first. 
your adult relationships second, and your children third, so that you can be truly connected with your children, so you can be your best. I'll see you next week.